Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Unsolved Mysteries. Stranger than fiction. We are endeavoring to bring to you little known mysteries of the entire world, and in this series of unexplained true happenings, we cannot overlook the puzzling and weird practices found in voodooism. There are strange stories of zombies, stories which filter into the world of everyday life, leaving no room for doubt that within the cult of voodooism in Haiti, zombies do exist. Glamorous Haiti, a few miles from Port-au-Prince. A long, low, rambling bungalow bathed in the liquid beams of a silver moon faces the open sea. Behind the cape rises in serried ridges of blacks and purples. And beyond that, faintly ominous, the deep, constant rhythm of the voodoo drums seems to belong to another world. 
three men sit on the lanai or veranda facing the beach. One of them, tall, slender, young in years, but with gray hair and lined face, stares out into nothing. The elderly man by his side looks at the third and raises bushy eyebrows. The third man, a stranger to Aiti, speaks. Very decent of you fellows to invite me out here. I sort of feel that, well, that I'm putting you to a lot of extra work. Not a bit of it. Servants take care of all the extra work. We're glad of your company. Clark. Yes, Strong? I'm going down there. You must? Yes. But don't be long. I won't. But don't wait up for me. Good night. Good night. Good night. In a moment, after Strong's out of hearing, I'll be able to explain. That's all right. I think I understand. Just a minute. I'll look down the pathway. Yes, he's gone all right. In spite of what he said, we can't turn in. And although you're a stranger here, I'm going to do what white men have to do in the tropics. I'm going to ask for your help, if I need it. You won't have to ask twice. I didn't think so. That's why I asked you at the hotel if you'd like to come out to our place. A few moments ago, you said you thought you understood. Yes, I know, of course. But it was just a year ago today that Strong's wife died. I was in New York at the time, and we were all very much upset. I never knew Strong, but I went to school with his wife, Helen. Well, it isn't because of his wife's death that I want you tonight. but because of what happened after her death. After her death? Yes. Do you know where Strong went just now? No. He went down to her grave, as he has every night for six months or more. Good heavens, why? That's what I'm going to explain. When Strong first came out here, he had a native servant girl. Clarissima, her name was. Attractive little thing, and she fell in love with Strong. Strong never gave her a thought. But you know native women. Yes, of course. Well, Helen came out here. And the night before their marriage, they were sitting just about here on the veranda. Oh, John, it's so grand to be here with you. And what do you think it is for me, darling? To have you here in my arms. To know that tomorrow you'll be mine forever, darling. Yes, John, forever. Oh, when I think of the nights I've sat out here dreaming, watching the ships sailing for the States, and then other nights when I've watched these same steamers come into the harbor and tried to imagine what you'd look like standing there on the deck coming out to me. <laughs> Did your dream come true, dear, did you find me changed? Oh, a little changed, yes, darling. But better than a thousand dreams. Ah, it's eleven o'clock, darling. Time for little girls to be in bed, especially when they're going to be married in the morning. <laughs> I hate to think of driving you out of your bungalow, even for one night. I could just as easily have stayed at the one time. Oh, not a bit of it, dear. It'll take me less than five minutes to walk down to Clark's place. Good night, dear. Good night, John. John. Well, Clarissima, what on earth are you doing here at this time of night? Why aren't you home with your father? I have been watching you. You've been watching me? You and the woman. What's the matter with you? What's come over you? What business have you watching us? I have every business. You belong to me. I belong to you? What rubbish is this you're talking? No rubbish, John. You have belonged to me since that night that the Bokar placed his spell upon you. Have you been drinking, Clarissima? You know I do not drink. John, if you marry this woman, I tell you something. In three months, she will be dead. Oh, now listen, Clarissima. I'm not afraid of your bokors, your voodoos, or your wanga. I have told you. Marry that woman, and before the setting of the third moon, she will be dead. Clarissima spoke the truth. Before the third moon had set, Helen was dead. In his grief, John gave no thought to her prophecy. Gave no thought to the warning that the wanga or spell of the bokor had been placed upon her. 
Clark, John Strong's friend, came to live with him. And one afternoon, Strong, arriving home earlier than usual, came up the veranda steps in time to hear Clark talking to one of the native servants. I tell it to you, master. I have heard it too many times. It's nonsense, Loma. Just jungle talk. Native rubbish. No, master. Many times before, a white man, he say rubbish. But me, Loma, he see zombie. Not one zombie. Not two. But many zombies work back there in sugar cane fields. But not a white woman, Loma. No one ever saw... What's all this, Clark? Oh, uh, we were just talking. Didn't hear you come in. I know you didn't. I'm sorry, old man, but I listened. Oh. Yes, I listened. I know you were talking about Helen. Now, what was it? Oh, just jungle nonsense. Nothing to even think about. I'll be the best judge of that. Tell me, Loma. No. No, master. If master understand, he know us. Tell me, Loma. Oh, come, Strong. You're making a fuss over nothing. Loma! Yes, master. Did I ever beat you? No, master. I'm going to, Loma. Beat you till you can't stand if you don't tell me. Listen, John, this is no way to behave. I tell you, you come with me and I'll explain. Come? Where? Come along and I'll show you. Together, the two men... Leave the bungalow. Loma, his eyes filled with tears, stands at the top of the Lanai steps and watches them disappear into the underbrush. Down toward the sea, Clark leads the way, his set jaw the only answer to Strong's questions. But, Clark, this pathway doesn't lead any place except to the cemetery. I know it. That's where we're going. What in heaven's name is it all about? Why don't you tell me? I want to prove that the whole thing is nonsense before I tell you. I thought you were my friend. I'm friend enough to want to save your reason. Oh, there's an open grave. Uh, go ahead. I want to get that spade. Clark. Clark. What? Helen's grave. It's been opened. What? Her grave, Clark. It's been opened. You'll find out in a minute. Now stand back while I dig. Oh, let me, Clark. Let me. No. Oh, it, it ought to be. Not yet. Clark. Clark. The casket's gone. These devils have taken her. My Helen for their damnable voodoo. No, John, no. Zombies. At breakneck speed, the two men race back to their bungalow. Loma from the veranda sees them coming up the pathway and runs to meet them. In silence, Clark points to the brush, and Loma in the lead breaks into the thick tropic growth. Dusk finds them struggling up the steep slopes of the Cape with that energy born of frenzied fear and nameless horror. Loma holds up his hand. In the strained silence, the men listen to the sharp crack of cane knives on stalks of cane, the crackling of falling cane leaves. Loma motions strong to come forward. He forces aside the sugar cane and stares, horror-stricken, into the clearing. Helen! 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 Horrible clock. Ghastly story. You understand now why John acts as he does. And why I wanted you here tonight. Then she was buried alive? No, she wasn't buried alive. But she wasn't dead? Yes, she was dead. She was a zombie. A dead person raised from the grave. A body without mind or soul. But it's impossible. That's what I said to Loma. No, Helen was dead. Killed by the curse brought on her by Clarissa's jealous hatred. And raised from the grave to be a zombie by the same voodooism that killed her. Yes, yes. Uh, Clarissa, what happened to her? The natives killed her. And Helen, you... You buried her After again? After we had had a salt. Salt? Yes, salt. If zombies eat anything containing salt, they return to their graves in peace. And you fed her salt? Yes, she... she crumpled up at our feet, dead, really dead. 
Out of deference to people who are still alive, character names in these unsolved mysteries have been changed. Inasmuch as any solution must of necessity be supposition, liberties of time, place, and character exist in the solution that will be presented after you have heard from your sponsor. gentlemen, the solution for which you've been waiting. Have you really a reasonable explanation of how such a thing could have happened? I'll answer that by asking you a question. Do you think that any explanation of such a ghastly affair could be classified as reasonable? No, I suppose not. But it happened, and so I say, how could it happen? In the first place, don't imagine this is an isolated case. So serious is the matter of zombies in the island of Haiti that the government has been compelled to pass the following law, Article 249 of the Code Penal of the Republic of Haiti. Also shall be qualified as attempted murder the employment which may be made against any person of substances which, without causing actual death, produces a lethargic coma more or less prolonged. If, after the administration of such substances, the person has been buried, the act shall be considered murder, no matter what the result that follows. And the government thinks that these zombies are people who have been poisoned and who have been certified as dead and buried while in a state of suspended animation. I mean that they have been given a poison that kills the brain, but leaves their motor faculties unimpaired. Between you and me, I don't think that the government really believes that. But after all, how would you try to frame a law against taking corpses out of their graves and making them work in the cane field? Yes, I see the difficulty there. But just the same, I don't see how even voodooism can make a corpse walk. Have you ever heard of inanimate objects being moved by the power of mind? Yes, I have. And isn't it possible that the same worker in black magic or voodooism that killed the person by power of mind could take that inanimate object to the corpse and make it move? Do you believe Yes. And I'll give you the final proof, at least my way of thinking. What is that? The fact that the natives themselves killed Clarissima, the native girl, because they knew that with the assistance of the witch doctors, she killed and made a zombie out of Helen. <laughs>
Unsolved Mysteries. Out of deference to people who may still be living, character names in some of these true unsolved mysteries have been changed. Tonight's unsolved mystery is based on records of the New York Police Department. It is called The Perfect Crime, because it has never been solved, even by the most brilliant minds of the New York Police. It is a crime that experts, after complete investigation, state could not have happened, yet they know that it did happen. Isidore Fink's Little Hand Laundry at 52 East 132nd Street, New York. The fitful light from the smoke-grimed street lamp only serves. Isidore Fink shuffles out of the cigar store across the street from his laundry, draws his threadbare jacket tightly about him as if to protect himself from the penetrating drizzle, then crosses the muddy street and unlocks the two heavy padlocks on his laundry door. sees Isidore glance fearfully up and down the darkened street before he closes the door and bolts it on the inside. The transom above the door fills with a diffused glow of light as Isidore turns the switch on the old carbon filament lamp hanging from the ceiling. Poor old devil. Gonna work half the night again to earn two bits. No, I guess I was wrong. He put the light out. Didn't you hear the shots? I thought it was an automobile backfiring. I'm standing down there at the corner. Where was it? Over in Pink's laundry. Help, please! All right, all right, we're coming. Who is she? An old woman who rents the back half of Isidore Pink's store. You got a phone here, cigar store? Yes. Well, better go down there call up the station. Okay, officer. Hmm, this door is locked on the inside. Officer, officer, what, what happened? I don't know yet. Is there any other way into the store? Oh, yes, through my room. But the door's bolted on his side. Well, I can't break this door down. It's too strong. You sure there's no other way in but through your room? You can't get through that way either. That back door is as strong as this one. Well, I can't get through that transom. Here, one of you kids. Which one are you flying through that transom? I will, officer. All right, all right, you folks. Stand back there. Come on, kid. Okay. I'll lift you up. Now then. Yeah. That's it. Uh. Now, take my nightstick. Break the glass. Hey, watch out. Don't cut yourself. Now, 
Here you go. Drop down to the other side and draw that bolt. Okay, officer. wonder where that light switch is. Ah, here we are. Good heavens. Is he dead? Yes. Killed himself. Sergeant, hold his door, bump himself off. Where's the gun, Pete? I haven't been able to find it yet. All right, boys, we'll take a look. Okay, Sarge. Sure, Sarge. Look where? No place to look except under that table. The room's bare. Oh, hello, coroner. Evening, Sergeant. What have we here? Plain case of suicide. Just looking around for the gun. Suicide, eh? Hmm. You think so? Car is your barn. No powder burns. A shot in the head would have killed him. Gun was at least two feet away. Sorry, gentlemen. From the looks of the wounds, I'm forced to decide that it was murder. And since there's no trace of a gun, the killer carried it off. Impossible. The place was bolted on the inside. Nobody could have got out of here. I had to get this kid here to break the transom, crawl through to open the door. Yeah, and I haven't got the gun. What would I want with a gun? All right, all right. How about that window? That window, Sarge. It's the only window in the place. And it's barred on the inside with bars so close, a cat couldn't get between them. Not only that, the frame is nailed in place. So is the transom frame, nailed in place. This door leading to the other room hasn't been open for years. Look at the cobwebs. This bolt here is rusted in place. Take a hammer to move it. Wait here a minute. We've got to be reasonable. Somebody got in here and killed old Isidore, and then they got out. Now, this is a single room, one window and one transom. Two doors, both bolted on the inside. Both window and transom nailed in place. And no fireplace. Nothing to hide behind. No yeah. cupboards. Then the killer must have come in here into the room with him. No, he didn't. Oh, how do you know? Who are you? I'm the clerk in the cigar store across the street. Oh, the fellow that caught us on the phone? Yes. Isidore came into my store tonight, bought a pack of cigarettes, and said he was going in to do some more laundry. I saw him cross the street. Your eyes never left him? Not for a second? No, I watched him cross, saw him open the door and go inside, and then I saw the light go on. A few moments afterward, the light went out, and then the three shots. Say, this ain't reasonable. You're telling me? I got the jitters now. There must be a trap door or something. A trap door? Look at that rough plank floor and tell me it's got a trap door in it. No, I guess you're right at that. Well, there's nothing more we can do here. You sure nobody touched the body? Of course I'm sure. What difference does that make, Sergeant? The murderer is what we want now. And he's not going to be easy to find. Any murderer that can get out of this room. Yeah, through two bolted doors and two nailed windows. I tell you, Sarge, the thing's spooky. Well, come on. We'll get back to headquarters and get the fingerprint boys out here. All right, lad. Come on. For 24 hours, a corps of detectives went over every inch of the one-room laundry for signs of revolver, trap doors, or secret panels. The most expert fingerprint men in New York's police department worked on the case. And aside from the fingerprints of the police and Isidore himself, not a thing was found. At first, the police worked with zest, then irritability, finally in complete bewilderment. The scene is police headquarters six months later. Well, boys, what can you tell me about this Fink murder? Not a thing more than our first report, Chief. Now listen, Sergeant. We're not going to let that two for a cent Fink murder get us down. Not going to, Chief. It has. Me too, Chief. I was within 50 feet of that laundry when the shots were fired. I know nobody left that building. Well, the murderer did. I'm beginning to wonder about that, Chief. What do you mean? Well, listen, Chief, the front door was bolted on the inside. Yes, yes, I know, and the back room door was bolted, too, and the windows were nailed in place. No place to hide. But, boys, the murderer got away, and that's what hurts. Got clean away. Chief, I've been a long time on the force, and I'm not superstitious. But something happened in there that night that the books don't tell us how to solve. Listen, Sergeant, that murder was brutal. It was physical. Get me physical, nothing else. 
We're not going to have the New York Police Department throw up a case and blame it on spooks. Just about what I'm ready to blame it on, Chief. The thing that gets me down, Chief, is the total lack of motive. Yeah, that does make it hard. I've gone through the file on his private life till I know it like a book. Little bit of an undersized fellow from Galicia. Works for ten years in the laundry, doesn't make a friend, doesn't have an enemy. Saves a thousand dollars and opens his own laundry. Works like a dog, 18 hours a day and makes a bare living. No women in his life, nothing to rob him of, not a reason in the world for killing him. Hello? Yes? Okay, right away. All right, boys, better forget it. There's more to worry about. What, Chief? A gang killing down the tunnel. Let's go. Five years have passed, and the New York police know as little today as they did the night of the murder. The feeling of the entire police department can be summed up in the cryptic expression of the chief. That two-for-a-cent faint mystery gives me the creeps. In just a moment, you will hear a solution to the perfect crime. as any solution must of necessity be supposition, liberties of time, place, and character have been taken in the solution for which you have been waiting. The scene is number 52 East 132nd Street, Isidore Fink's Little Hand Laundry, the night of the murder. Isidore says goodnight to the clerk in the cigar store across the street from his laundry, and crossing the dimly lighted street unlocks the two heavy padlocks on his laundry door. slips inside, closes and bolts the door behind him. The rough board flooring creaks beneath his feet as he crosses the floor to the light switch. He reaches out in the dark. The switch clicks. You! You, you, sir! Yes, Isadore. You found me! Yes, Isadore, I found you. Strange, Isadore, but true. I found you. Isadore, I am going to kill you. Oh, no, no. Have mercy. No, Isadore, I have no mercy. I am going to put out the light, Isadore, and then I am going to kill you. You are going to die, knowing that I shall live on after you are gone. But you can't. You'll be caught. Oh, no, Isadore. I shall not be caught. You bolted the door on the inside, Isadore. And when the police come, they will have 
to send someone through the transom. That will be after you are dead, Isidore. And then, when the policeman steps into the room, it will be in the dark. I shall step backwards out of the room. And when the lights go on, Isidore, I shall be one of the curious, morbid crowd about the door, looking horror-stricken upon your dead body. I am going to put out the light, Isidore. Two o'clock in the morning. 
Mademoiselle Rose de la Cour turns into La Rue Morgue. The guttering street lamp shows her lithe of figure, pretty of face, the Mademoiselle of the Boulevards. She stops at her apartment, number 16, and rings the bell. Nicola, who is it, Rose? You are very late, Rose. I'm very tired. Well, let Paris not what it was. <laughs> no young gentleman do buy you dinner, eh? <laughs> you have guessed it the first time. No, no, but I am hungry. Oh, come with me into my room. The coffee, he is hot. The bread, stale perhaps, but not too stale. Rose, yes, good Why do you not go to the country away from all this? <laughs> me to the country? <laughs> I cannot live without my Paris. The laughter, the song, the theater, the cafe, the boulevard. Oh, no, 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 c'est impossible. Um, no one call upon me today. Not one single person, my chérie, not one. Come, come, petite. Drink the coffee and then to sleep. Tomorrow may be brighter. Oh, you have been very good to me. I will do as you say. I will go to bed, but not to sleep. No, 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 not to sleep. Slowly, Rose Delacour makes her way up the creaky, rickety stairs. Five flights of them, with the rotted, worm-eaten banister giving under her touch as she pulls herself wearily onward. Her own room at last. The heavy door groans as she opens it, closes it. The rasping of the lock as she turns the key. The dull click of the bolts, top and bottom of the door as she forces them home. The one window with its leaded panes of glass slams as she closes it and turns the catch that locks it in place. Dreary silence, broken only by the hammer-like ticks of the old clock as Rose undresses and gets into bed. A puff and the candle is out, its dying flare showing a wisp of smoke curling ceilingwards. My chérie, it is ten o'clock. I have the coffee and the rolls. Rose. Rose. What is it, Madame Dufresne? There is something wrong. I know it. Rose, Rose, she does not answer me. Or perhaps it is that she is tired and sleeps. No, no, it is not that for you, but I am afraid. Call these police quickly. Call them. Call them. Police. Come Rose. Rose, answer me. Speak to me. It is Suzanne Dufresne. Oh, what is the use? She is dead. I know it. Oh. What is the trouble, madame? Oh, well, listen, oh, Rose, Rose, she does not answer me. Here, let me knock on the door. Mm, no answer. But that we break down the door, Molitano. You cannot break down that door without an axe. Oh, Pierre. Yes, Molitano. Oh. Bring an axe. In case it is that we cannot break down the door. At once, Molitano. At once, everybody. Now, Jacques, we will together go our way to get the door. You ready? Oh, my chérie, my chérie, oh, she's... she's dead, though. Pierre, 
Et madame a tapé rond. Oui, oui, mon Comme madame. Un pour vous, c'est l'inspecteur. This is very strange, ma lieutenant. The window is locked on the inside. Impossible, impossible. Impossible, lieutenant, it is. He or she could not have come in and gone out that way. It is 60 feet above the ground. Nothing to hang on to. No way to get in or out. And no mark on the window. The door, both the top and bottom. Whoever did it could have turned the key in the lock, but the bolts, no. One could not shoot the bolts after leaving the room. The chimney? Mm, not that way either, Monsieur Tenant. It is, if anything, smaller than usual. You see, a tile chimney. Not even large enough for a cat. Nothing bigger than a bird could get through that chimney. But somebody somehow got in here, kill Rose, and get out again. Madame! Madame! Who came in here last night with Rose? No, not one single person. You are certain? But yes, Rose came home at two o'clock. She rang the bell. I myself opened the door. She drank some coffee in my room, and then she came upstairs. I watched her go. No one to get into the house without passing your room? No, no, impossible. Pierre looks over the house before ten o'clock. Then at ten, the door is bolted, and no one can get inside after that without me, Madame Dufresne, seeing them. Then whoever committed the murder must have got in before that and hidden in the house. Oh, but he could not get out again. I have the key to the front door. And anyway, that will not explain how he got into Rose's room. And it does not explain how he gets out again, holding the bolts on the inside. Sacre bleu, but not before did I see anything like this. No cue, nothing. A bolted door, a locked window, 60 feet above the ground. I'm possible. I'm possible to happen, but it does happen. Come, Jacques, we will go to the Sûreté. And Monsieur Le Cour will work on this case. But neither Monsieur Le Cour nor any of the other brilliant minds of the French police could find any clue upon which to start an investigation. The apartment was searched, almost torn apart in an effort to find a trap door or secret passage. Nothing. Nor the suggestion of anything. Always a bolted door, a locked window. Two weeks later, Monsieur Le Cour is seated in his office at the Sûreté talking to the lieutenant. Bonjour, Monsieur de Cour. Yes, sit down, mon lieutenant. Merci, Monsieur. No further development in the Jellicoe case? Nothing, Monsieur. I have come the underworld of Paris, hoping for a chance where a single thing that one might call a clue. Had she any enemies? No, Monsieur, not that I can find. No money. Nothing to be robbed. Un pauvre demoiselle de boulevard. Not worthy of such hatred or such careful planning. You had someone watching at the morgue when the, uh, when Rose Delacour was laid there? Oui, Monsieur. Nothing but the usual morbid crowd. No known underworld character. And besides that, everyone that I have picked up at it questioned the as an alibi for that night. Mm. You have no suspicion of Madame de France? No, monsieur. Besides, no woman struck that blow. Yeah, granted. But she could have admitted the murder and let him out again. That still does not account for the door bolted on the inside. Uh, may we, of course, mon lieutenant. Always we come to the door bolted on the inside. Always, monsieur. Till my dying day, I shall find myself face to face with that stout oak door. Bolted top and bottom. That lady glass window locked on the inside. And Rose Delacour, lying there staring unseen at the ceiling. And today, almost half a century later, when the Paris police discuss the murder in the Rue Morgue, they come face to face with the same problem. The locked window, the door bolted top and bottom on the inside. Out of deference to people who are still alive, character names in these unsolved mysteries have been changed. Inasmuch as any solution must of necessity be supposition... Liberties of time, place, and character exist in the solution that will be presented after you have heard from your sponsor. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, the solution for which you have been waiting. Uh, tell me, Monsieur Lecour, have you no idea after all these years as to how the murder of Rose Delacour was perpetrated? Mary, because I think I have a possible solution. Indeed? You must understand, Monsieur, that at the time of the murders in the Rue Morgue, the chimney sweep was a familiar figure on the rooftops and among the chimney pots of Paris. Chimney sweep, monsieur. Mary, the chimney sweep cleaned the chimneys of Paris by lowering a round brush on a piece of rope or a pole made of many pieces of wood fitted together. I understand. And you understand, monsieur, that I have no idea who the murderer might be, but I think I know how he committed the crime. This murderer realized that a chimney sweep would hardly be noticed on the roof of Rose Delacour's apartment. I can see him donning his disguise, an old soot grind suit, carrying his bag of paraphernalia, but hidden in that bag was a French bayonet. I can hear him as he creeps over the tiles, muttering to himself. It is easy the way I have planned it. It cannot fail. I lower these two hooks on the two lengths of string. Now I lower the bayonet. Then I will go to Rose de la Cour's room. I will hide under the bed. And when she is fast asleep, I kill her. In a few moments, I fix the hook to the door and the strings to the bolts. <laughs> it is so simple. And I return to the roof, I pull the two strings, and voila, the bolts, they are closed. I pull the string and the hooks up the chimney, and yes, I must not forget, I must not forget. The third string, I pull him too, because on that, I have the bayonet. How they will puzzle over the mystery, these French police. (laughs) And puzzle they did, these French police, and with them the rest of the world. Edgar Allan Poe wrote his solution. But Poe was writing fiction, and so in order to give legitimate literary punch to his denouement, he ignored the fact that the chimney was too small for even the tiniest monkey, let alone an ape, to get through. Unsolved Mysteries.
crimes of murder are mysteries because the murderer, having foreseen every difficulty of avoiding detection, has successfully overcome these difficulties and has therefore actually avoided detection. But there are crimes in which the mystery lies in the manner in which the crime was committed. Such is the case of the bridge whist expert, as the New York police termed the slaying of J.B. Maxwell in his apartment 644 West 70th Street, New York City. Since some of the characters are still alive, names of characters and places have been changed, but the dramatic reenactment is authentic in every detail. The scene is the 600 block West 70th Street, New York. The mailman on his rounds waves to a milkman across the street. Police officer Brown saunters down the sidewalk, and at that moment, a woman walks down the street, up the steps to number 644, takes out a latch key, opens the door, and walks into the apartment as the clock strikes eight. Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Maxwell, I brought you. <gasps> the body? No, I should say not. Who are you, anyways, wife? No, he wasn't married. I'm his housekeeper. I, I came in just a few minutes ago. I was going to tell him something. I came in here and found him like this. You were out, huh? You leave the door open when you went out? No, I, I was just coming in for the day. I live at my own home. You found the door locked? Yes. I had to use my key to get in. How many people have keys? Only me and Mr. Maxwell. And yeah? Well, the lock was changed only last week. Anybody can get in through the back door? There is no back door. There's a basement door. This door's on the inside. He, Mr. Maxwell must have killed himself. Nobody could have got in. Killed himself and then went out and hid the gun, I suppose. Well, I didn't think about the gun. Anybody here with him last night? Not before I left. Hmm. Maxwell smoked a load of cigarettes? Not that I know of. Well, was this one here on the mantel shelf when you left last night? Been left burning inside the shelf. It wasn't here when I left. Hmm. Well, this is probably the DA and his investigators. There's something else I don't understand. There's a lot I don't understand. But Mr. Maxwell wore a wig, and, and he had artificial teeth. He was very particular that nobody ever saw him without them. And yet he... Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have on his wig, and he doesn't have his teeth in. Where are you, Walter? That's the D.A. And here, Mr. Wilson. Uh, what have you uh, found out, officer? Well, he was shot through the head. House was locked, both doors locked on the inside, and no gun. Yeah. He was reading his morning mail when he was shot. Yes, Gary. We got him his mail. He must have got it himself. Hmm. He was dead when you came in? No, he, he was still breathing. And he could have let the murderer in himself. Yeah, but the murderer couldn't get out. No? Who are you? The milkman. I called you at headquarters. I was in the street delivering milk for 20 minutes and not a soul but the mailman. The mailman? You saw him? Sure. I waved to him. Hmm. How long before this woman, uh, Mrs. Lawson, arrived? Oh, less than five minutes. Oh, wait a minute. Let's get this straight. No one has come out of this house since the mailman delivered the mail? No. Then whoever killed Maxwell is still in the house. Sorry, Mr. Carey, but that won't do. I searched the place while we were talking in here, and there's no one in this flat beside us. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe you didn't see anyone come out of this flat, but someone did. That's that. 
Well, Mr. Wilson, I was walking my beat, and I would have seen anyone leave. Then he was killed earlier than we think. Oh, couldn't he, Gary? He's got the mail in his hand. Oh, yes. I realized that as soon as I spoke. There's something else to puzzle over. Look at the bullet hole smack in the center of his forehead. Yeah. Yeah, but look where the bullet hit the wall. Can you beat that? Now then, uh, where would a man have to stand in order to fire a shot on that angle? Over about here, sir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's all right except for one thing. You're standing 15 feet away from Maxwell, and the shot was fired within three feet. See the powder domes? Well, a man would have to be lying down on the floor to fire the shot at that angle and move powder domes. So it would seem. But what was Maxwell doing, waiting for the murderer to take aim? He's got me beat. He's got more than you beat. Uh, Wilson. Yes? I'm going out for a minute. Then to call the phone company. Yes? Yes. I've got an idea. I'll be back in a few minutes. See if you can dig up any more of them. Whoever killed Maxwell must have... Well, it must have been well known to him. Well, we know that because he admitted the murder himself. He yeah. must have. But more than that, he was particular about his appearance. Mrs. Larson said so. He wouldn't have admitted anybody, that is, anybody he didn't know very well, without first putting on his wig and putting in his artificial teeth. Hmm. So? So the murderer was a man and not a woman. And he was a man from whom Maxwell had no secrets. All good reasoning, Brown. But it neither gives us a motive nor does it explain how the murderer got out without being seen. Yeah, but Mr. Wilson, it does help to explain how the murderer got close enough to Maxwell to kill him at three feet without arousing his suspicion. You're right, Brown. You're dead right. Your idea at least narrows the field of search down to Maxwell's immediate friends. Oh, uh, here's Carrie. What'd you find out? Plenty. Did you say, Brown, that this phone was out of order this morning? Yes, sir. I tried to use it, and Mrs. Larson said no, that... but the phone had been out of order for several days. Well, listen to this. The phone company's records show a call, an incoming call, at three this morning. Then Maxwell called Rockaway, 1841. And at 6-9, he called him under in Garden City. But you, Mrs. Larson, say that the phone has been out of order for days. I know it has. Because the other day, the chauffeur drove over here instead of phoning, because he said the phone wouldn't work. Well, it's beyond me. The fellow's shot through the head, apparently makes no effort to fight, must have been shot by someone lying on the floor, doors, both of them bolted, the house under observation for at least 20 minutes, and a man doesn't live that long with a bullet through his brain. Uh, I tell you what. Yeah, what, D.A.? This place has me jittery. Let's go down to headquarters, send out the fingerprint boys, and talk it over down in my office where things like this don't happen. The fingerprint boys went out to the Maxwell flat. They found nothing. No fingerprints but those of the legitimate occupants of the house. A cigarette on the mantel shelf? Uh, the Lotus cigarette meant nothing. The investigators never knew before that the Lotus brand of cigarette was so popular. The DA's remarks about talking it over in the office became a joke to the department because every day, Carey, Brown, the police surgeon, Wilson, and the fingerprint boys collected there to discuss the murder of the bridge whist expert. I tell you, Chief, it was robbery. Oh, rubbish. The man had $500 in bills in his pants pocket. $5,000 worth of jewelry lying loose on his bureau. And if it were robbery, how come the thief gets within three feet of him before he plugs him? And I don't care if it's robbery, mayhem, or anything else. That doesn't explain how the murderer got into a locked house Windows bolted, killed a man with a forty-five, was lying on the floor to do it, walks out with a milkman watching, a milkman who swears that no one left the house. Backed up by the policeman on the beat. There's the woman, the housekeeper, who says that the murdered man was breathing when she entered the room. Hey, everybody in the neighborhood seems to have been watching the house, and no one, not a soul, sees the murderer leave. And not a soul hears the shot. What's that you said? Not a soul heard the shot. Oh, gosh. There's the solution, if only we knew how to apply it. What have we missed? Eight o'clock? He's dead. Shot through the brain. Powder burns showed the shot was fired within three feet. Doors locked. Police outside. Milkman outside. Postman brings mail. 
So we know he was killed after that. Do we? That's it. That's the second puzzling remark you've passed in five minutes. Not a soul heard the shot. And do we? The chance remarks of a policeman on the beat. But they were the answers to the riddle which has haunted New York's police department for 15 years. But we believe that we have an answer. Ladies and gentlemen, the solution for which you have been waiting. The scene is the 600 block West 70th Street. A few minutes before 8, a figure, the mailman, walks down the street and up the steps to number 644, rings the bell. Oh, forgot some mail, did you? I just came to the door a moment ago and got the mail. No, I'm not the mailman. You? You? What on earth is the idea of the disguise? Don't keep me standing here. You got my letter? Yes, I got it. Come in. Come in here. You uh, don't mind if I continue to read my mail? I'm only interested in one letter in your mail. Yes? Yes. Will you give it to me? No, I won't. You know what I said to you yesterday over the phone? Quite well. And I haven't changed my proposition one little bit. Listen, J.B., as a mother, I'll go down on my knees to plead with you. Get up off your knees and forget the melodrama. Look here, J.B., in my handbag... Oh, little fool, don't touch that gun. Listen, J.B., I'm going to kill you. You idiot. You can't get away with this. Oh, I can. I planned it. Don't move. I'm promising you. If you move, I'll kill you. You asked about my disguise. Now is it clear? No one notices a mailman. And this gun, J.B., you recognize it. My husband. It has a silencer. But you, you, J.B., won't even hear it click. Now the letter. Where is it? Ah, under the chair. I'll move it. Oh, here. He's not so heavy. The kneeling woman, the moved chair. These were the two things which confused the police when they investigated the acute angle the bullet had made. The mailman's disguise suggested itself to the woman because it was a letter she wished to recover from Maxwell. The mailman's disguise was what confused the witnesses as to the time element. Some of them saw the real mailman, others the murderer in disguise. So... The murderer, partly by luck and partly by planning, had left the New York police another unsolved mystery. the answer to the riddle, what happens in the unseen realm beyond. With all our science, 
We're as far from answering that question as man was in the beginning. But with the accumulated records of the past, the conviction is borne strongly upon some that there is a link joining us mortals with those who have passed this way before. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.